had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Jesus, or said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one of them was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is God's word. You may be seated. I don't know if you noticed it this month, but uh, outside of uh, myself and Ben and the shepherds who led our closing uh, prayer, uh, all of the leaders of worship this month have been uh, teenagers, guys in their 20s, and, and guys in their early 30s. And uh, the reason we did that was, uh, you know, we have a large church, and uh, we have so, so many people that are maturing in Christ and moving towards a, a greater discipleship in Jesus. And, and I thought it would be uh, just a great idea if we just put young, our young men, our leaders of the future, not just of the future, but some of, many of them right now in their uh, specific areas of, of church influence, but to have uh, all of these, these, these young guys up here before our church and leading us in worship. And I really appreciate all that they did this month, and I thought they did a great job. And let's show them our appreciation. And uh, this next month, all the guys that are in their 80s and 90s, we're going, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> we know who you are. John chapter 13. Welcome to everyone who is streaming with us. Uh, that's bow our heads here in this auditorium and at home. And that's add, uh, ask God to bless us as we get ready to study this great, great chapter. Father, we are thankful in this moment that you have revealed yourself to us where we can stand in awe of you. That you are uh, higher and wider and deeper and taller and thicker than any blessing you give us. We choose to put our eyes on you and all your glory 
and forgiveness and mercy and love. We are, we are grateful beyond our words to wield the sentiment or the emotion. But it is ingratitude and with um, a, a renewed sense of living our lives worthy of your grace that we come before you this morning. And especially in front of this text that lies open before us, it's our prayer, Father, that you help us to see it. Help us to have eyes and ears that take it all the way into our bones and past our bones into our soul in such a way that we are completely revolutionized in the way that we live life, the way that we, we see other people, and your presence in whom we live. Thank you for all of these things, and thank you for this, this moment. I don't know how long it lasted, but for this moment in all of history where your son Jesus wrapped a towel around his waist and showed us true servant. Thank you for that moment. We pray to live with it throughout all of our history on this planet. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I don't need to tell you this. You already know it. We live in a, a world of all sorts of revolutions that have been ignited by exposure to the vast expanses of human need and of human suffering. But here's the thing. All of those revolutions, whether they're political or social or economical, educational, whether they're a great cultural revolution, all of these revolutions will ultimately fail because they do not recognize that the most profound revolution happens inside of human beings. The most significant, the most important revolution takes place within the human heart. It's spiritual in nature. The gospel is what starts that spiritual revolution that takes place within the hearts of humans who have turned their lives over to God. That is not an exhaustive or comprehensive statement of the gospel, but it is a statement that I think defines one part. And that part is this. The gospel is the spiritual cure to the spiritual problem that lies beneath all the other problems. Now in the gospel there is forgiveness, and I never want you to hear me say that the, the forgiveness is not huge. It's, it's, it's a game changer for we as human beings, for us as human beings, to feel that sense of cleansing in our soul and in our hearts and in our minds of all of the things that we have done and that we do and that we will do in the future that are against their transgressions against God's will. Forgiveness is huge, but forgiveness is only the beginning. In the Gospels, human beings are changed. In the Gospel, human beings are changed. There's a, a quote out of one of, I think, the most important books ever written, in, in, at least in our lifetime, uh, by a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. He says, we can become like Christ in character and in power and thus realize our highest ideals of well-being and well-doing. That is, to live like Jesus. 
That is the heart, he continues, of the New Testament message. Do you believe this is possible? My central claim in this book is that we can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of the life he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. End of quote. In other words, if anyone claims to live in him, they must walk as Jesus did. Now, the one thing that I would add to that quote this morning is that this is something that we do not do alone. We don't become like Jesus or begin to walk as Jesus walked among people on this planet on our power alone, under our own steam. We do it by the power of God's Spirit. There's There's this beautiful illustration at the end of C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Four Loves, where he writes about the glory of a garden. And one of the things that he says about the glory of that garden is that it does not get to that glory, that beauty, by itself. He says, you take a garden and you leave it alone for a while, it becomes a wilderness, which in one respect sort of testifies to the great power that's found in the life of a garden, before a garden to glow with color and to smell like heaven, he says it needs an outside power that will prune and fence and weed and fertilize that garden in order to use his words to liberate the splendor of it. That's how in, in, in a garden you produce unblighted grapes or apples without worms or towering trees rather than a tangled mess of limbs and roots. One of the areas in which our lives are revolutionized by the gospel and the splendor is liberated in each and every one of us is when we learn to profoundly live for other people and not for self. I'm not talking about service. I'm talking about serving like the Christ. There's a big difference. I think that the church never stands so tall as when it kneels in Christ-like servanthood. So in this text, in John 13, we're going to see three things. We're going to see a need, and we're going to see an illustration, and we're going to find a directive for our lives. Let's begin with that need. You know this story that uh, the dean has read for us? The disciples of Jesus are seated at a dinner. We're told that it was sometime before the Passover, but it's not specified. But what we are told to specify a time is that Jesus knows that the time has come. That the time has come for him to leave this world and to go back to the world of the Father, to the Father's presence. Now the disciples are thinking about another time. They think that the time is nigh for Jesus to come and to take over and to become the nexus the zenith, apogee of how they define power and how they define the powerful in their world. If you go to Luke chapter 22, it tells us that these same disciples are, 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 are struggling with another issue in their mind, but it's not the same one as the Christ. They have something on their mind, and it's a question. The question is, who is going to be the greatest? Out of all of us who have followed you, Jesus, the dozen of us, Who's going to be the greatest? It's so disappointingly ironic. These 12 fellas have seen Jesus live for others his entire ministry. 
They have seen him minister and teach and never once, not one time, ever think about himself. They heard him clearly define his life in words. He says in Mark, uh, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 20, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now Jesus has to address this issue again at the end. And he tells them a parable. And at the end of that parable, in Luke chapter 22, he says, The greatest among you should be like the what? Should be like the what? The youngest. And the one who rules like the one who what? Serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Going back to the parable. The obvious answer, and he gives it, is it not the one who is at the table? But I, speaking of himself, am among you as one who serves. Now they need to hear this because they're still shaped by their world's view of power. They have not been able to break out of that. So in John 13, the washing of the disciples' feet becomes the most blatant, outright, shameless contradiction of the worldview of power imaginable. In a short period of time, God is going to exalt Jesus, and He's going to exalt Him to the highest place because in love, because in love, He is willing to step off of the precipice and plummet into the deepest darkness for our sake. God is going to exalt Him because He, in love for us, is willing to go through betrayal and being beaten into the dust and beaten to a pulp and misunderstood and lied about and falsely accused and stripped down naked and publicly crucified when at the snap of His finger He had 10,000 angels at His disposal to come and rescue Him. But their worldview and the way that they think about power, their worldview did not have a category for that kind of thinking yet. And this is something that we still struggle with some 21 centuries later. We struggle with this kind of thinking. Think about the great kingdom reversals that we talk about from time to time in here. The counterintuitive reversals of kingdom kingdom values and how they come in and reverse everything inside of us we live in a world that says look out for number one the jesus world says the first shall be last in our world it's win baby win win at any cost in the jesus world it is if you want to be great you have to become like a what servant we live in our world with those that believe that do unto others before they do unto you. In the Jesus world, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same, he says in Luke chapter 3, verse 11. And so here are these guys struggling in their worldview with not only that moment, but for the next couple of days, they're going to struggle with what? God is doing through Jesus. And now Jesus is going to have to give them a visual. And it is a visual that they will never, ever forget. Jesus strips down. He wraps a towel around his waist. And in the silence of that room, he begins to wash their feet. 
They're shocked. Nowhere in their worldview did they have, and the Roman world as well, that you had the higher dropping down to the lower and doing something so menial. In fact, in this period of time, there were laws that said these people could not be compelled to do this kind of, of, a, of a, a degrading, servant-driven task. You know, it's kind of easy, I think, for us to lose sight of what's going on here. Foot washing is no big deal in Western 21st century living. I mean, we pay to get pedicures. And people make a lot of money washing people's feet. But perhaps the closest thing that we have to this to help us to understand what it is that Jesus is doing is that we, we, we have in our church these ladies over in the nursery who changed the worst, most disgusting, worst-smelling diapers you can imagine of babies who do not belong to them personally. That's the closest thing that I could think of. And so what Jesus is giving them is an illustration. He's giving them an illustration of the greatest example of love and, and service. What it means for Him to incarnate Himself from the glories of heaven to our life on this planet, He does it by getting up and washing feet. At the beginning of the passage, we are told that Jesus knew He was going back to the Father. Which means that He had come from the Father. It's a reference back to the incarnation. You know the incarnation. Philippians 2, Paul says that Jesus did not count equality with God something that he was just going to hold on to, that he was going to grasp until his last dying breath. But he emptied himself. That is, he stripped himself down from the, the glory that he had in the presence of God the Father and God the Spirit. He takes the form of a servant and he humbles himself to live for others rather than for himself. By dying on the cross. Now again, if there's a scripture that most of us could quote from memory, it's Philippians 2. And there, that's, that's such an awesome thing. But the downside is we become so familiar with it that it becomes nearly cliche. And in it becoming cliche, it becomes empty of its power for us as we talk about being servants. Think about it this way. Think about you know, walking, walking through a, an old house and you see a spider web. You see the spider and you see a fly that hits it. This incarnation thing would be like us deciding to become a fly and to allow ourselves to be caught in the spider's web and killed by the spider in order to defeat the spider and to set all flies free forever. Not just from spiders, but even the fear of spiders. I just want to say that's a lame example. Because in this particular case, I'm on the side of the spiders. But that's what the Christ has done. He's become like a fly and allowed himself to be ensnared in the net that enslaves us 
unto our death. And Jesus gets up from his place of honor at the table. He takes on the role of the most menial, without rights, statusless servant to wash their disgusting feet. He's come from the Father. He's going back to that glory. He strips himself down and washes their feet. And his status and honor takes a blow. A couple of years ago, I was listening to a, a preacher illustrate John 13 with a football example. And I was reminded of, uh, and I think I've told you this, this example before, of watching the Texas A&M versus Duke in a bowl game some years ago with my son when Johnny Manziel was quarterback. Texas A&M has the ball. Duke linebackers are after Manziel. They're able to go through the line, and Manziel, as he always does, is, is having to scramble. And Johnny Football can scramble because he wants to win, and he's willing to scramble because he wants to win. And he holds on to that ball just a second longer than most would have. And just as the linebackers from Duke are beginning to deliver that crushing blow to him, he lets the ball go, and it's caught for a first down. Why does he do it? Why does Manziel take a hit for the good of the team? Why did he do that? It's because someone in the line sinned. They messed up. They missed an assignment. Maybe they called the wrong blocking scheme. Maybe got off the ball a little late, or maybe they were just out-muscled at the line of scrimmage. But someone had to take the hit, had to take, take the blow for somebody in the line messing up. And Manziel said, let it be me. Let it be me. I will absorb the hit. You see, Jesus' way of, of loving people was to see the brokenness of human, humanity and say, let it be me. Let it be me. I will take the hit. I will take the blow and absorb the cost. Nowhere in Scripture do you have Jesus saying, you know, it's not my fault. It's not my fault that they have feet that looked like they ran barefoot through a, a stockyard. Jesus says, let it be me who strips down and stoops down to wash their crusty, dirty, smelly feet. I'm going to make that my job. That's what he says. And so Jesus in love left his home in glory to take care of a need that every human has that was not his fault. And what Jesus is doing is giving them a picture of what it means for him to leave heaven and to come to earth as a man. And as a man to pick up a cross in order to take on himself the sins of the world. Now lest we think that this is just about service, it's not. This text is about love. Very first verse, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I take you back to that football game. What would have happened to that lineman if Manziel had not taken that hit? 
if he had, uh, you know, thrown the ball out of bounds in order to, to, uh, to not take that hit. The pass would not have been completed for the first down. The drive would have stalled and the Aggies would not have scored. And the linemen would have suffered the wrath of a coach and possibly been benched. But because Manziel was willing to take the hit, he saved the lineman from bearing the brunt of the coach's wrath, and he is free of paying the penalty of being benched because of his error. You know, it's Plato who said that all illustrations have limitations. This one is no exception. But Jesus is trying to teach his disciples that he sees our greatest need And he is willing to do whatever it takes, even take the blows of of fists and insults and lies and hammers and nails in order for us to be free and to become everything that God intends for us to be. To liberate the splendor that's in humans. And it's this kind of loving service that changed our world. And it still does. And the church, again, is never as tall as it is when it, nails in the, when it kneels in love and servanthood, this kind of service. Which now brings us to the directive and we're done. Jesus says at the end of that passage that Dean read for us, he says, Now that I, your Lord, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This is what we do. When we go out into the community, we don't go out. It's sort of like love. Jesus says, you you know, if you love those that can love you back, what difference does it make? Even the pagans and the tax collectors know about that kind of investment. But you're supposed to love people the way that I love them. Love your enemies and pray for those who intend to do harm to you. Same thing with service. We don't go out and just serve. Everybody, in one way or another, at some time in their life, will serve. We go out with a directive to serve as Christ serves. Which means sometimes breaking out of those comfort zones and doing what needs to be done because of its importance and because you see a need that needs to be filled. i give you three things real quick and then we're, we're done. So... Continually review your life and revise your plans in order to walk as Jesus walked among people. Think about your schedule. Think about your itinerary. Think about your agenda. And especially look at it in terms of your ambition. And there's nothing wrong with ambition. But you have to think about these things on a regular basis in order to make sure that you are available to walk as Jesus walked among people. Number two, remember Christian service never detours from sacrifice. It just doesn't. And number three, the possibility of the unimaginable message of Christ's cross. 
that Paul would say in 1 Corinthians is just a stumbling block and foolishness to just about everybody that looks at it. The possibility of the unimaginable message and truth of God's cross being true is seen in the uncommon service of his disciples. In that ancient world, when those plagues hit those large metropolitan urban areas, pagans were running for their lives. Running for their lives, leaving their loved ones behind, but, but scattering and fleeing the city out of fear and out of a, a certain sense of self-centeredness. They're, they're fleeing those cities while the Christians are pouring into the center. In the ancient world, didn't have an answer as to why these people would go and care and even take the disease in themselves and caring for other people. Why on earth would, would they do that unless the message of the gospel was true? There's a, a passage at the end of The Four Loves that uh, every time I read it, uh, I, I get choked up. And in it, uh, Lewis says, He creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing, for there are no tenses in God. The buzzing cloud of flies about the cross the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time, for breath's sake, hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who has deliberately created his own parasites. It causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself. The inventor of all loves. You know, there's Peter says, man, you're not going to wash my feet. He's against Jesus washing his feet. Can't figure it out. If you're the captain of a fishing boat, you don't row. It doesn't fit into any of his categories for power. But the deep down reason that it doesn't make sense to Peter is because Peter hasn't quite grasped that he needs a foot-washing Messiah. We all do. The depth of our sin so great that the only way that there can be this revolution that is triggered in our hearts is by God the Son getting up from the table with God the Father and God the Spirit and saying, I will strip down of my glory and empty myself in order to meet their need. I will serve them this way. I will take the hit 
I will take the blow for where they have messed up royally against themselves, against the people they love and the people in their neighborhoods and against creation. And I will take the hit because of the way that they have messed up against you. And he comes down and all of that takes place in such a way that you and I, you and I, don't ever have to worry about that death coming down the spider web at us, helpless and trapped and enslaved to that, to that, that, uh, that web that we have become entangled in because someone defeated that death. What we do at the end of our sermons is we offer an invitation. It's an invitation for you and for me to do business with God. And when things begin to make sense, and we have those epiphanies and those things begin to make sense to us, it's an opportunity for us to respond somehow to that. Not just emotionally, but rationally. And not just rationally, but also emotionally, because we're talking about our life. And that's why we offer this invitation this morning. The shepherds down here at the front. And if you would like to take on the, the, the relationship with God that Christ died for, by, by, by repenting, just turning your life around in a cognitive way, I just, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to live my life as a follower of Christ and recognizing that He is the Lord of all, whether we admit it or not. We see that He is Lord. And being baptized so that we participate in His death, burial, and resurrection. Receive that gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers us and strengthens us to become the kind of people who not only love like Christ, but also serve like Christ in this world to the blessing of our life. If that describes you this morning, come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and we sing out our praise to God. Restore my spirit, Lord, I need restored. My heart.